welcome to the Phillies Nation podcast, episode number four zero, number forty of the Phillies Nation podcast. I am Tim Malcolm, the host, also the editorial director of philliesnation.com. Go there today for all of your Phillies news, rumors, information, opinion, and much more. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash philliesnation. Find us on Twitter at philliesnation and Instagram at philliesnation underscore. As I said, it's episode number 40 of the podcast, which means that it is time for a mailbag on the 10s. We do a mailbag episode And it's a good time to do it because we are now one week and change into the 2018 baseball season. The Phillies are 3-5, not quite 500. It always seems like a slog to get to 500 to start the season. And if they don't get there within like two weeks, then we're looking at a below 500 year all season probably. (laughs) But it, it, it always feels like we're just trying to climb to 500 in the early going. And this year is no different. The Phillies, of course winning just one of three against the Atlanta Braves, then going to City Field and dropping both games in a rain-shortened series. I was at the very cold and terrible Tuesday night game at City Field that I believe the temperature was maybe around 40 degrees, and my toes were numb, and it was wet, and I spent half the game inside the Foxwoods uh, lounge, or whatever you want to call it, in the Excelsior-level area at City Field because it was just too darn cold, and the Phillies' offense was not uh, very good in that game. I did happen to go, though, two days later to the home opener against the Marlins, and that was a much more exciting ball game with the Phillies, winning that one with a shutout. Nick Pavetta pitching very well. Uh, the offense got going themselves. Michael Franco had a really good game with a home run and a triple. And then, of course, that second game of the series, the Phillies just absolutely broke out the whooping sticks and took down the Marlins 20-1. That was an incredible game with grand slams by Franco and then Aaron Altair later in the game, also a three-run home run by Carlos Santana. Phils have been looking better. But then, of course, Sunday was the loss to the Marlins 6-3. Bit of a letdown with the bullpen coming up short at the end and the offense not really doing anything after the third inning. Nonetheless, the Phillies are 3-5, and five, not looking too bad, not looking too great. They're basically in the middle, which is about where we kind of thought they would be. But it is early, and there are a lot of early things happening that we cannot make judgments on yet. Now, the mailbag will touch on some of these judgments. I'm going to tell you right now that a lot of people are not happy with J.P. Crawford. And I'm going to tell you right now that you should not worry about J.P. Crawford. Yes, he is having a tough start to the season, hitting 043 with an 083 on base percentage and an 043 slugging percentage. Basically, he has one hit in his entire season, and that was a single. In 25 plate appearances, J.P. Crawford has one hit, a single. He also has one walk and eight strikeouts. Those aren't good numbers. I mean, I, honestly, when you look, and, and, I, and I can't lie, these are bad, terrible, atrocious numbers for anybody to have. But J.P. Crawford is working on his swing. That was one thing that the team was talking about going into spring training, that they were going to help J.P. with his swing a little bit, try to get him to where they want him to be. The most important thing about J.P. is that he has very good defense, and that has shown in the early going. Yes, he's made a couple blunders, but they mostly were shift-related, and it was tough for him to get positioning. Nothing that you can really blame him on. And he is a patient hitter. He is seeing a lot more pitches than you might think just watching him in the box every time. Hopefully he will turn it around and 
as history has shown, he will turn it around. He's not a 300 hitter. He's not a guy who's going to light the world on fire with his bat. But he can be someone who can hit 260, 270 when he's at his peak with maybe a dozen or so home runs, a bunch of steals. He's going to be patient. He's going to have a good on-base percentage. Great stuff there with good defense. Not happening right now. Be patient. He is one of the things that we don't have to worry about at this moment. If, let's say, Reese Hoskins was starting out really this slowly and he had one hit in 20-some at-bats, then we might be a little concerned. If Carlos Santana was starting out one for 24, then we should be concerned. But J.P. Crawford, who's 23 years old and in his first full season in the major leagues, let him get into it here. Let him get comfortable. Let him, you know, not not have to... Let him have to see a lot of pitches from Major League Pitching, basically. And hopefully it'll turn around in the next couple weeks. At what point do the Phillies have to make a move with him? I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But let's say by early June, J.P. Crawford is hitting below 150. Yeah, maybe they make a move at that point. But I'd be surprised if they even do that because the Phillies really believe in J.P. I believe in J.P. I think he's going to be fine. And... Also, they don't really have a lot of shortstop death beyond death beyond him. You could say Scott Kingery is, you know, ready to go at shortstop. Well, he's not. He's not a born shortstop. He hasn't played a lot of shortstop in his life so far. He's only played a little bit in spring training and a very small amount in the regular season this year. He's a second baseman. So you wouldn't bring J.P. Crawford down to AAA and let Scott Kingery take over at shortstop every day. That's a terrible move. You don't want that kind of defense there. He's not that good there. Pedro Florimon is the only other shortstop on the roster, basically, and you don't want him starting every day for the Phillies. They are going to let J.P. Crawford get settled and get into his groove. I promise you, I think he'll be much better as we go on here. And if he's not, then I'm wrong, and the team's wrong, and we have a real big problem on our hands. But from everything we've seen of J.P.'s entire career, yes, he hasn't been the greatest hitter in the minor leagues. Yes, it took him a while to get comfortable in AAA, but this is someone who can turn it on. And when he does... He's a better gap hitter. He's a better line drive hitter. He'll get his. He'll be about a 260-270 hitter with some steals, with a little bit of power. All those things will be good with great defense, good leadership, and a good on-base uh, on percentage. Now, of course, the J.P. Crawford stuff is being contrasted to what's happening in San Diego. Freddie Galvis is starting off his 2018 season on a really high note. Here are his numbers from the former Philly. 40 plate appearances in a National League high 10 games played, 364 batting average, 475 on base percentage, and 485 slugging percentage. Freddie Galvis in the early going has walked seven times and has struck out seven times. He's hit a home run. He's hit a double. He's playing very well. I don't expect this to last. His on base percentage has always been paltry. He's always had problems with the strike zone. Last year, he had 111 strikeouts to 45 walks. The year before that, he had 136 strikeouts to 25 walks. He's not necessarily a great hitter. He's having a good start in San Diego. Don't worry right now. If Freddie Galvis somehow turns into the best shortstop in baseball this year, I'm telling you right now, nobody saw it coming. Nobody in the Phillies organization, nobody in baseball, nobody even with the Padres saw this coming. There's no way you would have seen it coming. It's been 10 games. Freddie Galvis is off to a hot start. Good for him. J.P. Crawford is off to a cold start. He'll get better. Don't worry about it.
Because it's a mailbag edition of the Phillies Nation podcast, I asked for your questions before the episode and wanted to get them on Twitter. And I preceded the question with a disclaimer. No questions about Gabe Kapler, please. We still got some because people are still going to ask. But Gabe Kapler is going to be an ongoing discussion point here on the podcast, and mostly because he's a first-time manager, and we're trying to sort of suss out what he's doing and give you a sense of how it's all going to work. I wrote a piece this past week on philliesnation.com, and I'm totally serious about it. Gabe Kapler, I am succumbing to the church of Gabe Kapler. I am, I am absolving myself, letting myself go, and saying, Gabe, show me the way. I honestly don't want to argue about it. I don't want to complain. I don't want to be upset. I want to see what Gabe does with this team, and I believe in it. I'm the kind of guy, as I wrote in this piece, that plays baseball video games as the general manager. That's what I do. I don't necessarily play the games. I actually play general manager. And if I do play the games, I'm managing them, and I take out pitchers once they start giving up fly balls and maybe they start to get hit a little harder than, than they should be. I also play out-of-the-park baseball, which you can find out more about in our other podcast, Playing the Rube, where me and Dan Walsh play as the 2009 Philadelphia Phillies on out-of-the-park baseball. But I play that game as general manager, and I am very analytically, sabermetrically inclined in that game. I'm looking at advanced stats. I mean, whatever advanced stats that they give you, I'm looking at those more than anything else. I'm looking at patterns. I'm looking at trends. Now, you don't have extremely deep analytics in that game, but I'm trying to use what they give me as much as possible. The point is, I'm I'm analytically driven. I love analytics. I like diving in. I like seeing what is happening within the trend lines. I try to understand how things are moving for different players and different situations. So I'm a Kapler fan. I should be a Kapler fan, and I'm giving it up. Take me... Wherever you're leading me here, Gabe, let's see what you do. I'm with you on the lineup construction. I've been pleading forever for a Phillies manager not just to put the two fast guys at the top of the lineup and to think more about on-base percentage at the top of the lineup. I've been pleading forever not to just succumb to having the closer in the ninth inning. Maybe you think differently about how bullpens are constructed. All that said, Kapler hasn't necessarily deviated completely from bullpen construction. Hector Neris is still pitching late in games, basically in the ninth inning. And before that is Luis Garcia, who hasn't been great this year. We'll see if that changes at some point soon. He's used Adam Morgan as the later lefty reliever over Holby Milner. He's basically used Edgar Ramos in the middle relief innings. So it's not like he's changing things wildly. He's just using relievers more often, which... Let's be honest, when you have a team with Vince Velasquez and Nick Pavetta and Ben Lively in the back of your rotation, you probably should use those guys more often. And he's changing up the lineup configuration a lot, which, let's be honest, you have a lot of young guys who've never hit in a major league lineup consistently. So why not change it around and see what works and what doesn't work? He had uh, Scott Kingery bat third for a couple games in a row, which seemed to work out a little bit. So he might go back to that when Kingery's starting uh, whatever he starts. So there are trends, there are sort of traditional trends that are starting to emerge here with Kapler after a couple games, but he is doing things differently from other managers because they're just right on the surface right away different than what we're used to. The shifts, yeah, they're happening more often here, and you'll see that when a shift doesn't work, you'll see that more often because 
you'll see guys positioned in such a way that's untraditional or unconventional. And then you'll see the ball get through the infield in a way that shouldn't have if it was conventional. So you're going to be upset because it didn't work. Well, think about the conventional way infielders are positioned. Third base, shortstop, second base, first base. Balls shoot through those holes all the time, and we don't complain about it because that's just the way it's always been done. But if you put three infielders on the right side of the infield against a Deadpool lefty hitter, that typically means that you're going to eat up that ground ball on the right side. And you don't complain about it because you don't think about it. But if you don't employ the shift there, the Deadpool lefty hitter can get it through that hole between first and second base. And you complain about, oh, why don't we put someone there? So it'll always happen. We'll always complain about infield positioning and outfield positioning because no matter what, you got to position them. It's just that Kapler is doing it in a way that isn't conventional. So we're going to see that and immediately get triggered when things don't work. But have trust, have faith. If you can, I am. I believe in this guy. I think he's going to do a good job. I think the results are going to bear out in time, and this will actually be a pretty good-looking team when all is said and done. But yeah, baby steps, growing pains, other TV shows from the 80s and 90s. It's going to take a little while. I'm going to be okay with it. I'm going to let things bleed out. Same thing with J.P. Crawford. I'm going to let things play out, and we'll see what happens. Don't get too uptight about it. Don't scream too much. I can't control what you do. But at the end of the day, have faith. P-H-A-I-T-H. Have faith in Kapler. Have faith in Crawford. Have faith in this club. Now let's go to the mailbag. All right, mailbag time. As always, these are real questions asked by real followers of Phillies Nation on Twitter. You can follow us at Phillies Nation. Ask your question. Maybe we'll save it for a later mailbag. We'll do one in 10 more episodes. So, I don't know, thinking probably around late June, maybe, something like that, early July. So, right before the All-Star break, we'll get one in. Here are the questions. First one comes from Tyler Brown on Twitter at TylerDBrown42. Was the 20-run game, which was back on Saturday, an indicator of anything for the Phillies this season or just a fluke like their 17-run game at the beginning of last year? I just want to note that it's really amazing that the Phillies on McDonald's opening night had the big outbreak offensively two years in a row. So last year, the second home game was against the Nationals on the first night game of the season at home. And I was at that game, and they scored, what, the I don't know, they scored like 12 runs in the first inning or something. It was unbelievable. And it was Aaron Nola's first start since coming back from injury, and it was really exciting, and Nola pitched fine enough, and it was great. Uh, but they killed the Nationals, and it was awesome. This year, that game happened again on the second home game of the year, and it was a 20-run game against the Marlins. Tyler, no. 20-run game does not mean that this team's going to be a great offensive team. 20-run games are outliers. They always are, unless you have a team that is just super incredible. And, I mean, there's very few teams like that in the history of Major League Baseball that are that offensively astute over everybody else. 20-run games are basically outliers. They don't mean anything, especially early in the year when you can't get a handle on how good a team is offensively. I think, more importantly, look at the games that they've been either losing or have had really close matchups in. So, like... The games against the Mets, uh, the game on Sunday against the Marlins, you know, three runs. Teams are going to score four runs a game, something like that. And the Phillies are probably going to be around that area too. They're not a great offense. They're not a really bad offense. They shouldn't be at least. 
they'll be somewhere in the middle this year. And I think, you know, four run games are about what you're going to expect. Three run games, five run games, whatever. 20 run games will happen once in a while. But when 20 run games happen, get ready for games where they get shut out. And, you know, if you get a 20 run game, you'll probably get three games where they're going to be shut out at some point. So they happen. It's an outlier. You know, don't think that this team's going to score 10 runs every other game. There's no way that's happening. Next question comes from Derek Brader at the Real DB35. He asks, "Do you think if Michael Franco has a good first half, they will still try and trade him?" Well, let's go over what Michael Franco has done so far in the first half. 26 plate appearances, 304, 385, 696. Two home runs, 11 runs batted in, leading the National League as of Sunday at least. He has seven hits on the young year with a double and a triple. He has three strikeouts and three walks. I, for one, am really excited about how Franco is playing. His approach looks a lot better at the plate. Uh, His swing looks better. It's more level. He still doesn't get it up in the air as much as he'd like to. The grand slam that he hit was at about a uh, 20-degree launch angle, which if you're looking at really good home run hitters, they are trying to get the bat at about a 25-degree launch angle. So that extra 5% is a big deal. It's the difference between getting a ball slightly over the fence and getting one into the seventh row, let's say. So Franco, when he gets enough of that ball and puts a real charge in it, it can go out. But on a typical Franco swing, that is, he's aiming for a line drive, he's probably going to get one that is maybe a base hit into the outfield, maybe a double. If he gets that swing a little higher, more home runs will come. If he gets that swing lower, like he had been in the past, then you'll have ground balls to third base and things like that. But Franco looks a lot better to start this year, which is great to see. His approach, great. Three strikeouts, three walks. He's not taking a ton of pitches, as usual. He's still trying to get his bat on the ball, but the swing is better looking. So hopefully that continues on. I'm sure he'll slump at some point. But if he can continue this sort of run for a much elongated period going into maybe May or June, we might be looking at a really good player this year. And I think at that point, if you're the Phillies, Derek, I don't think you trade Franco. Franco still has the ability of being a 30 home run hitter. Still has the ability of being a guy who can get close to 300 batting average. I'm not saying he can do that this year, but that potential has always been there. And if you're the Phillies and you started with a guy who had very little value to start the season and he becomes that kind of player by July, why would you give up on that? You can then sign him to an extension for probably lower than you would have maybe two years ago. So you're getting him on a lower value, and you're extending your value with him instead of trying to trade him for probably what a team would maybe lowball. You know, If you try to trade Franco to a team in July, even if he's really good, that team might say, well, he's only been producing for three months. Let's give you a back-end starter prospect or something like that. That's not enough, I don't think. So if I'm the Phillies, this is a year where if Franco really shows off, I'm trying to keep him. And I know that goes up against what we're looking at next year with Manny Machado becoming a free agent potentially, and Scott Kinger needs to find his way into the team somehow on an everyday basis. Well, if anything we've learned about this team, it's that they're ready to be flexible about guys' positions and where guys land in the roster. If Franco's really good this year and you want to bring him back next year, then you might be able to move a J.P. Crawford. I'm not saying you should do that. I love Crawford. I want to see him develop. 
But then that becomes more of an option. Same thing with Cesar Hernandez. Obviously, that's been an option forever, but maybe there becomes more of an incentive there. Maybe you trade Scott Kingery. I don't know. I'm just throwing things out there. But what you want to happen is for these guys to get better. Because if they do, that means you have more options for the future. And honestly, because Franco's value was so low to start the season, I definitely would not try to trade him right away if he's looking good this season. I'd rather keep him and see if I maybe can bring him back for a low ball two to three year extension deal. The next question comes from Andrew at the A Collins. He asks, what's more likely, Crawford warms up or Hoskins cools down? Well, you know, I guess if I had to choose one or the other, I would say Hoskins cools down. It's just about unsustainable for someone to go 440, 559, 760 for a full season, let alone a month. Um, I mean, you could do it, I guess, but I would put more money on Hoskins cooling down than Crawford heating up. At the same time, I don't think there's much worse that Crawford will do here. He's going to get better from 043, 083, 043. He's too talented a player. He's been around for too long. He knows how to hit the ball. It's going to work out better for him. But if there's a more likely scenario, I would say Hoskins cooling down just because it's really hard for any player over more than 40 plate appearances to retain a batting line of over 440, 550, 750. That's just, it's really tough. Um, If he does, however, we're looking at potentially one of the greatest seasons of all time. So that's great. But I'd rather say Hoskins cools down than, uh, than Crawford heats up at this point at least. The next question is from Connor Walker at Connor Walker 24. He said, what do you think the outfield should look like? And if we were to trade one of them, who and for what? Well, at this point, I don't think it's really a great idea to trade anyone from the outfield because we've had some cold performances to start the year, primarily from that right field contingent of Aaron Altair and Nick Williams. They've been playing terribly. Altair in his first 29 plate appearances, 083, 241, 208. Just the grand slam home run is basically all he's done so far this year. Meanwhile, Nick Williams, 188, 188, 188 across the board. He has three hits and 16 at-bats. They're all singles and five strikeouts, no walks. Williams has been unhappy with not being in the lineup a lot. He's got to produce. That's all it is. I mean, he's got to produce, right? If one of these guys starts producing, they will get the lion's share of time. But right now, neither is producing. So when you have that situation, I feel very good about having four regular outfielders out there between Hoskins, Herrera, and then Altair and Williams. Herrera is starting out the season very nicely. Hoskins is obviously, as we said, on a really good start. So I'd rather have the four going. If one of these guys does start performing really well, then yeah, I would think about maybe dealing one of them. But if this team wants to contend for a playoff spot this year and maybe be more of than be more than an 81 win team, I'd keep them all. I'd honestly keep them all. And whoever is not performing becomes your fourth outfielder, and you live with that. I don't necessarily yet believe that Roman Quinn can step in and be the number four outfielder that we need him to be to start. I think he's very talented, and if he starts the year healthy and looking like himself, then we can start to talk. But at this point, I'd rather have the three starting outfielders with a fourth outfielder who can play a lot too, because very likely one of those guys will be slumping at all times, and very likely one of them could be hurt at some point. So I'd rather have all of these guys in the lineup right now and on the roster 
If I wanted to trade one of them, it would be only because Roman Quinn is playing out of his mind and needs to be in the major leagues. And at that point, I would trade whoever is playing better of the Williams and Altera contingent because both guys, I don't necessarily believe in long term. I'd rather move whoever's playing the best and has the most value at that moment. And maybe you can get a late rotation kind of guy for him. Um, more likely, you'll probably be able to get a middle reliever or maybe even close to a back-end guy. That would be fine, but that just shows you what kind of value you're going to get. And so I don't know if it's worth it. So I'd rather keep all these guys from the outfield. And then in the offseason, then we can reestablish what it looks like. And if we have to make a big move, then we do that. Next question comes from EQ Money at Equatrone on Twitter. He says, who do you see as long-term closer for the Phils? Is he currently on our MLB roster, minors, or is he a free agent signing or trade? Well, currently on the roster, look, Hector Neris, I don't think, is a long-term solution as closer. He's a nice pitcher, and he could be a late-innings guy for a good team, but asking him to be a late-innings guy on a playoff contender I think is probably slightly too much. He started out, eh, you know, a little bit off so far. He's got a 10-1-3 ERA. Uh, he's only been in three games so far, so I wouldn't go nuts on him. But I don't think Neris is a long-term solution. I do think another one in the bullpen who is a long-term solution is Victor Arano. Arano has been talked about a lot over the past couple of years. He got hurt last year, was out for quite a while, but he came back and was really good at the end of the season with the Phillies. He's 23 years old. In four innings this year, he has five strikeouts and no walks. He's looked efficient. He's looked really, really good. He's got a fastball that gets into the mid-90s, can top out in the high 90s. Really good breaking stuff. He looks like he could be a closer someday, um, even in the next year or two. I think he could be a late innings reliever by the end of the season and someone that the Phillies really rely on this year. So I would keep a watch for him. Beyond that, Edgebray Ramos can be something. You know, he's only 25 years old. This year, he started out really nicely. Four innings. He has an ERA of zero. Four strikeouts and one walk. He's someone that I would be very interested in seeing how he develops this year. Maybe he becomes a closer by the end of the season. And then beyond that, I always have liked Sir Anthony Dominguez. He is right now in double Redding. He'll probably be in Lehigh Valley at some point soon. He's got amazing stuff. A fastball that can get into the high 90s, close to 100. He's got a really good breaking pitch. He just needs to develop a little bit more. But he's someone that you can keep your eye on in the farm system at least. So maybe by you know the next two years or so, you see a bullpen that has Victor Arano, maybe Edgebay Ramos, and Sir Anthony Dominguez in it. That would be a really good back end. I think at some point the Phils would want to supplement that group with a really good late innings reliever, someone you know at the level of like an Aroldis Chapman or someone who can really close down games and has experience in the playoffs. But that I think will come probably next year or the year after that. As of right now, keep your eye on Arano. Keep your eye on Ramos, and down the line, keep your eye on Sir Anthony Dominguez. Next question from a good friend of mine, Brian Hun on Twitter. Brian Hun, H-U-N-N. He asks, who's the starting five come August? And I actually asked that question on the Phillies Nation podcast, I think with Brian Michael last time out, and we tried to come up with our best idea of what a post-trade deadline rotation would look like. I, at the at that moment, said... I could see the Phillies making a trade for, say, a Marcus Stroman. And then, so your starting five would be Aaron Nola, Jake Arrieta, Marcus Stroman, and then pick two of any of the guys who are still milling around there in the rotation. 
I'm going to go ahead right now and say that that doesn't happen. I think the Phillies will be slightly more middling than that, and they might not want to pull the trigger on a big-time rotation guy. So instead, they're going to cycle out some guys who aren't really doing their thing in the regular rotation. My best guess for a starting five come August, Aaron Nola, Jake Arrieta. Let's stick with Ben Lively because I actually believe in him a little bit. Let's stick with Nick Pavetta because I think he can he can do some things and and get the front office a little bit excited about him and his future. So I think he'll stay there. And let's go up the board a little bit. I mean, I don't know how little bit this will be, but Tom Eshelman, who is someone that is obviously has the stuff to be a major leaguer, good command, uh, has always had good walk rates. I think he gets to the major leagues at some point this summer. I think you might see Vince Velasquez cycle out. Maybe Jared Eikhoff cycles out when he gets back from injury. But I'm going to go with that group. Aaron Nola, Jake Arrieta, Nick Pavetta, Ben Lively, and Tom Eshelman. Is that the best starting five? No, but I think it's one that can be somewhat stable. And as the offense gets better into the midsummer, maybe this team builds on that and gets to be around a 500 or better team at that point. Next question comes from Stuart Hoffman at Dr. Stuart Hoffman. He asks, now that Jake Thompson has been sent down to AAA, will he again join the Lehigh Valley Iron Pig starting rotation? I, I, I don't think so. I haven't heard that he will or anything like that, but it seems to me that the Phillies are pretty set on him being in the bullpen. Uh, they like what he can do as sort of a, I guess, hybrid long man where he can pitch two to three innings at a time, but then also be situational at times. Uh, He does have decent enough stuff, but he can also be stretched out. I think that they're probably going to keep him in a bullpen role. Plus, the Lehigh Valley rotation is relatively set at this point. Drew Anderson's in that rotation. I'm not really high on him, but I think everybody else that they have in that rotation is who they want to have. Eshelman's there. Eflin's there. Um, I just don't know if Thompson really fits that plan. And I think he's probably more akin to being a full-time reliever who can maybe be stretched out a little bit. So that's pretty much where I think he goes. Um, Keep an eye on it because it's possible that he goes back into the rotation if they need him to. But I I can't imagine that that happens. My next question, and this is a question that we have already talked about a little bit. But I'm going to sort of bring it back home here. comes from Alex Lowe at the underscore Mr. Lowe, L-O-E-W. He asks, as of today, current date of date and time, so I'm going to say it's uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Monday, April 9th, was trading Freddie Galvis and having J.P. Crawford start the right move? Now, you're asking a guy who likes J.P. Crawford a lot. You're asking a guy who didn't really like Freddie Galvis a lot, especially offensively. Yes, it was the right move. <laughs> I'm saying it right now. It's the right move. Freddie Galvis, as I said, is off to a great start. It's good to see it. I'm glad for Freddie. But I don't believe that that is, that is a sustainable start for Freddie Galvis, who has always been shown to be a terrible guy in the box when it comes to taking pitches. I can't believe it's going to stay that good. J.P. Crawford, meanwhile, this is someone who, yes, has struggled at the plate in Lehigh Valley. Yes, he struggled a little bit when he came up with the Phillies last season. But he's got a lot of great things going for him. Very good defense. He does have better plate discipline than Freddie Galvis. He also is a leader in the clubhouse, like Freddie Galvis was. He also has got some speed and power that will show up at some point. His bat will get better. It's going to be fine. I think a lot of people believe that this team right now should be a contender for a playoff spot. I don't think that's realistic. I think this team is probably more a contender for a 500 spot. And that's what we should be shooting for. 
as long as this team is somewhat starting around 500 every day, a couple games out, whatever the case may be, you can't complain about too many things. J.P. Crawford struggling. That's something that we figured could happen. Give it time. I think it's fine. And I think it was the right move for the Phillies to keep J.P. Crawford and decide to move on from Freddie Galvis. Honestly, I don't have any problem with it whatsoever. Final question, and this is sort of a timely question just coming off of Sunday's game from Chris13 at MedicChris13. He asks, why did Jake Arrieta get pulled after four innings and 74 pitches? He could have done six innings the way he was going. Yeah, Jake Arrieta looked really good after that first inning. He stumbled in the first, getting himself sort of settled, uh, but then he picked it up and had a really nice inning two through four, struck out five batters. He looked really nice. You know, no hits given up, uh, yada, yada, yada. The plan all along for the Phillies, this is what they've said, was having Arietta throw somewhere around 75 pitches. That's where his plan was going. He threw somewhere around 60, I believe, in his previous outing, which was a simulated game, which is not against real hitters in the major leagues. So they're moving him to the point where he can get to throw 90, 100 pitches a game. I would imagine that his next start, he's a lot more free to throw 90 to 100 pitches. And if he's throwing well through five, six innings, yeah, they might even let him go a little bit longer. But this outing on Sunday was definitely about getting him settled, having him pitch in a real major league environment against a real team. Yes, it was the Marlins, but they're a real team. And just having him get through those couple kinks that he got. I mean, look, the fact that he had to give up three runs in that first inning, I think that was really nice. I mean, you don't want to give up runs, obviously, but you figured it was going to happen. And on a Sunday afternoon game against the Marlins where they could have swept him, but they didn't, whatever, that's probably the best scenario to give up three runs. So I think they got through that part. Now in his next start, very likely he will throw 80, 90 pitches, maybe even 100 if they are feeling frisky with him. And if he feels good about it and he's throwing well, that could happen. So I think this game on Sunday was just part of the plan, and it's okay, you know? Everybody's got to get back up to game speed. And now that the week is over and we're past the opening week stuff and we can finally sort of get into the regular schedule, I think we'll start to see this team sort of flatten out into what we expect them to be. Pitchers will go as long as they can go. The lineups will start looking relatively normal, at least to what we've been seeing so far. You'll see Alfaro get more starts at catcher than Andrew Knapp. You'll see Kingery get his four games in a week or whatever. Things will start to build here, and you'll see this team as you want it to be seen. And finally, we'll get games mostly every day and not off days on Fridays or Sundays or whatever the heck they have off. Coming up this week, the Phillies have the Reds, a three-game set at home. All three games at 7.05 p.m., which kind of stinks because, you know, the weather's still kind of cold. And then the Phils go to Tampa Bay to take on the Rays. They will have a weekend set there. Friday game at 7.10, Saturday game at 6.10, and then the Sunday game is a day game at 1.10 p.m. Then they go to Atlanta after that. We will be back with another podcast on that Monday to start that series. And six games this week, which is great. Only one off day, which is, you know, normal for baseball. Let's see if we can win two series. The Reds are not off to a good start this year, nor are the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. I mean, both teams having a really, really tough start to the season. The Rays have had a lot of bullpen problems to start the year. They're 1-8 and eight 
So maybe this is an opportunity for the Phillies to get that first sweep of the year. They could also do it against the Reds, who are 2-6. and six. This is a real opportunity. Hopefully the Phillies can take advantage and get back over 500 and get into the race here in the National League East, which is pretty darn good to start with the Braves, Mets, and Nationals all kind of hanging out. The Nationals are under 500 at this point, and the Mets are a Major League best 7-1, and one, but uh, they'll be there for sure, the Nationals. So it's a good race, and hopefully the Phillies can get back into it with some games against some poor competition this week. That is it for the Phillies Nation podcast, the mailbag episode. Thank you for sending in your questions. As always, go to philliesnation.com for all of your Phillies news, rumors, information, opinion, and much more. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash philliesnation. We're on Twitter at philliesnation. We're on Instagram at philliesnation underscore. Thanks to bensound.com for the music. Check out the Phillies Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star review. Give us an awesome write-up. We'd love to hear from you and subscribe. Please subscribe to the podcast. Also, while you're there, take a listen to Playing the Rube, our other podcast where I play Out of the Park Baseball with Dan Walsh as the 2009 Phillies. The season uh, in real, well, so it's, we're still in July in the podcast, but we just finished the season in recording. So some really interesting stuff happens and we will start talking off season, which is really fun. But listen to Playing the Rube. It's an awesome podcast. We have a lot of fun with it. And I do a lot of work on it. So please take a listen for the Phillies Nation podcast until next time, which will be next week. I'm Tim Malcolm. See you next time.